All right. Well, the, the gang is finally back together. You've got Michael Molinari finally back here. Ted Robinson, I'm Yogi Roth, Ted and Yogi's Pac-12 Adventure. We're coming to you wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, now on YouTube, Instagram TV, we got a video element brought to you by Zoom. We got the, the, the three box, <laughs> which is pretty fun. Uh, Ted, you clearly win with the backdrop, man. I mean, producer, this. Mr. <laughs> Technology. That's what we said. <laughs> well, I had every Olympic piece of clothing that I own trying to cover up all this stuff back here when I had Katie on. So I figured we had to figure something else. And listen, this is the perfect example of it. I can figure this out. It isn't that hard. Yes. So the next episode, <laughs> yeah. ideally all of us, the production level be amplified. If you missed anything, Ted had an incredible conversation with Katie Ledecky last week, Ted. That, that was awesome. I'm curious, you know, you were in the middle of the interview, but when you step back over the weekend and the Olympics being postponed, uh, you and I, we had our own podcast about your thoughts on the Olympics, but talking to not just one of the greats in the last couple of years, like she's going to be one of the greats ever. What, what are some of your thoughts, takeaways a few days removed from the interview? Uh, well, real briefly, look, she, she's an extraordinary person, and I've had a chance to see her in some venues away from the pool uh, and watch how she conducts herself, and, and she just, you know, she's the classic case. Yogi, I'm guessing you were this way at 20. Katie just turned 23. Michael, no way. I know you weren't this way. Huh. Um, but Katie Ledecky at 23 is just as comfortable in a room with 53-year-olds as she is with 13-year-olds, and that's an incredible gift that uh, that she has and i've seen her again function but but what i liked because i've seen her do several other interviews she was on an anderson cooper town hall on cnn she did a hit with uh, uh, mike tarico on nbc and they were all very quick and just basically olympic oriented what i loved about ours guys was that she talked about stanford and being a college student and that was what i hoped to draw from her and it's important because she considers herself a stanford student who also is a hell of a good swimmer but she's not a swimmer who's just using Stanford for the pool. And that, I think that's a significant difference. And again, in this era, I think we cherish people like that even more. Yeah, that, that's really well said. Okay, so Michael, you haven't uh, been on in this off season as we've kind of cranked this up. You've been in the NBA, like literally uh, in trucks, traveling, doing a variety of games. I'm gonna ask you to go back in time because you were also in Las Vegas with Ted during March Madness and the conference tournament when COVID-19 was happening. but you, you live in duality in basketball season. What was it like to be somebody who is in NBA arenas as well as in Las Vegas, the arena during March Madness when all of this happened and we saw sports really come to a screeching halt? I would say the thing that jumps out to me looking back is how quickly everything changed. I was at Staples Center on the Sunday before Las Vegas for Lakers Clippers. And you look back on the LA Times now and going through Staples Center was just kind of like ground zero of passing the virus around. Fortunately, um, nobody I know from the NBA or from college basketball on our crews has uh, experienced it yet. I'm sure someone will um, at this point, but uh, it was, everybody was cautious, but I think cautiously optimistic on that Sunday. And then I know I listened to you and Ted last week and I was at that dinner after the Wednesday night games and there was still some cautious optimism that we were going to be able to do this without fans and how strange that might be. Um, but you wanted the kids to have that opportunity to, to play for that championship if you could make it happen. And unfortunately, due to the circumstances, it, it wasn't able to happen. And I think 
everybody made the right decisions and they were very difficult decisions to make, but uh, now in hindsight, they were definitely the right ones. Yeah. You've uh, worked with uh, some people like Doris Burke. She's come out and said it. What's it been like communicating? I don't know, Ted, I, I don't know anybody personally that's had it that I'm in a constant communication or relative communication basis with. Uh, well, I did, I did have a text exchange with Doris and she said it, and you can hear it on the, uh, the Woj podcast as well, but about two or three days, just absolutely zero energy and looking at the symptoms, she thought she may have it. And she went into a hospital and got the test and found out she had it. And she said, as I've heard this a lot for the people that fortunately recover, by the time I received the news back, I was already feeling, feeling pretty good because it's been taking so long, seven, 10 days. So Doris was the same story you read about a lot of the people that fortunately come out of the hospital or don't even have to go in. By the time I received news, I had this, I was already feeling better. So that, that seems to be the prevailing story of the younger, healthier people. And obviously, you know, we find out now it's not just the young people. Uh, it's not just the old people and the people with uh, uh, low immune systems that are hurt by this disease. There's those exceptions that happen too. But fortunately, most healthy young people find out I've had this after they've already started to recover, which is, I guess, the good news, a little bit of good news in this. Yeah, that's really well said. Ted, how's it been in your community? You know, another weekend goes by. Here we are another week still at home. Yeah, no, it's been really good. I mean, I, as people probably know, listening up, I live just a short throw from Stanford, both Yogi and, and Michael are in Southern California. Where we are, we were put, uh, we're now into the week three of our shutdown. And our area has been really respectful. People, um, uh, you know, you go out, we've been doing a ton of walking to, to the grocery stores or the pharmacies. People are respectful. It's groups of one or two. Uh, the stores are monitoring only so many people get into Trader Joe's at a time. And, uh, you know, the, the, thankfully where I am, the stores are providing uh, actually one of the uh, store clerks I know told me last week they were having trouble because they're trying to put acrylic barriers up for the cashiers between the cashier and the customer, but they couldn't get tap plastics to open and finally did. So they now have acrylic barriers up. Uh, the, the cashiers and the shore, uh, the, you know, those who stock the shelves, those who work behind the, the meat counter, etc., all wearing masks. Um, everything is, everything's been safe. Everything's been respectful. Uh, you know, people uh, are, come, you know, you go by a restaurant, they come out to your car and deliver the food after you put it into your app or call the order. I mean, all the things that, that you're all going through and around the country, wherever you are, you may not even experience this yet. We're in week three of it here. And I think it's been really good. People have uh, here have been nice. And the good part is I have been able, and I'm sure you're all doing the same thing to check in with a lot of my older relatives. I talked to my uncle. Uh, I have an uncle in New Jersey who turned 90 on Saturday and I called him today and he, he and my aunt are doing great in their little holdup, you know, quarantine place in New Jersey. And I have to say, though, I had, Michael, I'm jumping, I'm jumping Molinari's spotlight here. I had a humanity moment. So we have a, a supermarket, uh, you know, a nice, a nice market in our town here. Uh, and like a lot of stores, I'm sure you guys have it where you are, too. They have a senior hour in the morning where you can go in uh, ahead of the crowds, 
shop more freely in theory, although around here we have a fair bit of an older population. So it turns out our senior hour is jammed. But anyway, I went to the senior hour, I think it was Friday last week. And so I get there and there again, we're monitoring how many people could go in at a time. So it's 7.30 in the morning and I'm standing out there and here come a couple of shoppers behind and they're starting to leer at me and giving me the evil eye. So there's a, a basically a, a rent-a-cop that was manning the door. And when I get up to be the next in line, he goes to me, you know, you're supposed to be 60. And I go, yeah. And he goes, well, no, you're supposed to be 60 to get in. And I go, yeah. And he goes, are you really? I said, you want to see? And then I said, thank you so much. My new hero, I got carded for senior hour at the grocery store. Yes. <laughs> well, there you go, Michael. I dare you to stop that one with humanity, Michael. Uh, I'm going to pass. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> That is so funny. Hey, what's happening? That's the best part of this, Molinary. Don't worry. They don't come up here at some point and like rip my yeah, head exactly. as we're going. What about you, Yoke? How's I mean, everything for you with Zane? And how's Mama? Everything's good, man. I mean, to your point, like two weeks ago, LA was like, oh no, they didn't really feel it was real. It, little hair and makeup for Molinary right there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's perfect. Uh, but, you know, everybody, they shut the beaches down. Um, everybody's really kind of minding their P's and Q's and just doing the right thing. You know, and it's been fun. Uh, it's been fun to be with a small circle, you know, just your family, stuff. <laughs> your, uh, just your community and do things like that, like have fun. And, uh, you know, Michael, you do one of the greatest things that I'm going to put you on blast here uh, that I've ever heard of when you travel with your family is you count the meals that you have when you guys have your epic summer trip. And now here you guys are at home and you probably have already had more meals than maybe you do on your summer vacation. So th- that's kind of been fun. So I think tonight is 81 of this since I left Vegas and I love big secret. I love to cook, but you know, in our line of business, it's really difficult to have the time. I think the whole in our line of the way the world operates still got at the time, but I've had the opportunity to cook and you a 90 minute to two hour window from making to eating to cleaning. And I have thoroughly enjoyed it. I really have. And it's been it's been a blast. And my two daughters are vegan, as some know. So I've learned a new way of cooking. That means I no meat. I thought you were doing tri-tip tonight. <laughs> no, that's Don's. That's Don's house. No meat, no eggs, no milk. So it's been a little challenging, but uh, they've fortified me with some good cookbooks. And it's, we've come up with some good stuff. Really good stuff. I'll send you the recipes, Yogi. I know you're trying. Yeah, yeah. Ted, always. I will not pass them on. <laughs> Good. All right. Well, uh, we, got a, we got some news in college football and uh, sports in college in general. Spring football, uh, I did an interview in Colorado this week and, or last week, and they were like, yeah, they're still talking about the spring game. And I was like, dude, they, they need to stop because that ain't happening. Officially, it, spring is, is over, at least what we would deem traditional spring football. Uh, all the conferences, Pac-12 as well, um, extended the suspension of all activities trying to get more time for football coaches. Right now, football coaches only get two hours a week to spend with their student-athletes to teach. Other sports get four. I don't have a clue why that is. It makes zero sense to me, but uh, the Pac-12 is leading a petition to the NCAA to get at least four hours to teach because you're looking at teams like USC and Washington and Oregon that have new coordinators on our respective side of the ball. So they, they need the time to do that. And then the second order of business is for spring sports, and I know – Ted, you're around these a ton. 
athletes who miss their entire senior year get an extra year of eligibility. Uh, so I'm curious for you guys. Uh, I think the spring football one's an easy one. Of course, they weren't going to have it. But regarding an extra year of eligibility, Ted, I'll start with you. W- what are your thoughts around that and how teams and programs and universities will move forward? You know, it's, it's the right thing to do. We all know this. I mean, that's simple. And as we were leaving Las Vegas that Thursday, um, I, sit, I was sitting with Adam Gordon and, uh, and Roxy Bernstein. We were sitting in the airport, and I said it right away. I said, the first thing they're going to have to do is make it right for the student-athletes that don't finish. And I was wondering if those that didn't finish basketball season, not everybody, but those might get that opportunity. Turns out, no. Uh, but for the spring sport athletes, it's the absolute right thing to do. There's no question about it. Now, of course, what we're learning in the world, and I think forums like this allow us to explain this to those who may not think that way. It's a brain dead thing to say, yeah, you got to get these kids another year. Absolutely. Now here comes the fallback, the cost. And you're already looking at colleges. And I, I, I think I said this with Yogi last week. I have a good friend who's on the board of a pretty significant, um, significantly good academic school back East. And he told me this two weeks ago. He said they already had conversations about a word that they've never raised once in a board meeting before, refunds. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, talking about room and board. And if you're a departing student, right, if you're either graduating or leaving, you're not coming back. They can't fast forward that. Like you could, you could take a sophomore's money and say, we'll just, we'll just apply to next year's tuition room and board. That doesn't work for a graduating student or for a departing student. Well, uh, now you're going to start adding more scholarship costs on that does come at a literal cost, which is why there was a proviso put in the NCAA announcement that allows individual schools to determine whether or not there's a scholarship uh, at play for that student athlete and what percentage scholarship. And the other part we know is that the spring sports and I, I Michael or Yogi, correct me, but I would think in amongst all the spring sports, there are very few full scholarships. Most of the scholarships are fractional. And so if you're a baseball player or a golf or a golfer or whatever this swim sports are, uh, you know, the, the beach volleyball, you're on a one third scholarship and you're senior and your time's up. If you want to come back next year, let's say you're offered a third again. Can you can you afford the two thirds, you know, are mom and dad ready to spring for another two thirds of the full cost of a year? Uh, so you can play another year of volleyball. I mean, those are the questions that will now come to light. But in, in, in you know, that being, that's the unintended consequence. The concept to me is 100%. That, that had to take five seconds to understand that was the right thing to do. Yeah, Without question, the right thing to do. I mean, and sometimes the folks at the NCAA take a little heat from some people on this panel. But I think in this case, I need to say bravo to the NCAA for making the right decision, making the right common sense decision. So that was good to see. The money is a, an issue. And I wonder, you know, I think some students may say it's worth it and some may not. And at least they'll have the choice. Yeah, that's the right point, Michael. That, that make, give, the, give the student the choice. Yeah, I think it's interesting. So the NCAA, they also came out and said that schools have the ability to use the NCAA Student Assistance Fund which is basically you can use it at different moments throughout uh, uh, institutions, you know, at, at any time. Like if you need money for students to assist them, you can pull from that. If there's tragedy, if something uh, unforeseen happens. So we'll be interested to see how teams piece it together. You know, there's a great piece today in the LA Times of, 
USC is about $72,000 to go and Long Beach State's 18,000. So if you're a baseball player and you're getting, call it a third of a scholarship, do you just transfer and play your fifth or sixth year now at Long Beach State? And that to me is going to be the interesting part around these schools. And, um, you know, everybody's taking a hit, right? So whether it's the big hit and donors, their business have taken a hit, whether it's obviously the families of these students, we've all taken a hit due to this. So I'm really curious to see the windfall of that. Of course, right thing, no brainer completely. Um, but now what happens with rosters and roster management? And I think that's what we'll see another layer of this of, you know, football, you're only allowed to have, 85 scholarship players. Well, if this was in the football season, they'd have to say you're allowed to have 105 scholarship players or whatever it may be. So what does that mean now? Do they increase the pool for scholarship money at certain, certain institutions? You know, this is an area where I'm sure name, image, and likeness would be nice if it was there where athletes can make a little bit of money if they had to. So that'll be, I think, the fun part as, as we track this uh, per institution, per conference. And then what does the NCAA student assistance fund really mean and how much money is really in there for every school to go get. Yeah. And here's, here's the other thing, guys, and this gets to what we, why we started this um, is because as each day goes by and more and more, this, this, this pandemic creeps more and more into our lives. I think uh, tomorrow I'm fairly positive tomorrow Wimbledon will be officially canceled. So another major sporting event goes, which is going to push the entire sports world into well into August now. You know, unless the NBA and or the MLB find a way to come back without crowds. Uh, and I don't know if they could do that. But in our little world here, this gets into football now. And as, as you just touched on, Yogi, the, 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 the money crunch that is going to affect everything in our society, which will also affect universities, if it's somehow, if, if college football's impacted, since, <laughs> since that's the cash cow right now, I, coming off having no March Madness, by the way, if college football gets impacted at all, that would be, to me, something that would grab the very, has already grabbed the very serious attention of those running these universities. Yeah, I talked to a coach in the NFL today, and I asked him point blank, like, do you think you're going to play? And I don't know if it's come out yet, because um, I haven't been on, like, social media today. But he basically said the owners were like, we're having a season. Yeah. We're not sure when. And maybe it gets pushed a little bit. But there will be a 2020 season. And I think college football is going to probably follow the lead of the league if we look at the NBA and what happened there. Um, But I don't know, Michael. I don't know. What are your thoughts? You've been around this for a while. Well, I was discussing this with somebody the other day. I think it's easier for professional sports to come back with nobody in the stands because in theory, student athletes should be going to school at a college while they're playing sports. And if the University of Arizona doesn't let students attend the university, how on earth can the University of Arizona football team play games? I, I don't know. Maybe they can. But to me, that seems like a massive contradiction in student athlete. I would say, Michael, the answer to your question is that's a 0.0% <laughs> chance. It's not a, it's not a sports question. This is a university question. The university has to be open for business. Before well, there are, the there are times, though, the football team plays at the beginning of the year before some schools are in session, and the Correct. football team plays when students are on Thanksgiving break. or you know. So there's but precedent the at parts. They're open for business is what I'm saying. 
There's Correct. some school students there. The administrators are in their well, offices. Research is going on. Right now, none of that's right. happening. But if our online, our online class is enough business for football to be played, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I agree with you, Ted, in theory, but at some point, all the money we just talked about comes into play, too. All right, Judge Yogi, break the tie. Well, I, you know, I'll tell you what, where, where my head went, I went to a player who the rule is, and I lived this with Larry Fitzgerald, my roommate in college, you have to be three years removed from high school to enter the professional ranks. So let's just say the season's over and you are entering your true sophomore season now, or tr- excuse me, true junior season now, but don't play your junior season. Do you then say, you know what? I'm going to the XFL. I'll make 80 grand. I'll make 120 grand. I'll make 300 grand and just say, you know what? I'm done. I'm going to go get paid. That's going to be basically my tryout year for the NFL anyway. And let me just go do my thing. Or do you say, you know what? I'm just going to roll the dice and go off my sophomore tape and go right to the NFL. And and I just think that if they cancel the season, the roster management is already a disaster. And we know how recruiting goes, right? Every staff in in the Pac-12 in the country has a big board and on it has positions and underneath it are different colors of tabs that have everybody's name. And one color means you're offered, one color means you're committed, one color means you're recruited. Well, if they all of a sudden said you can sign 45 guys because we're rolling everybody over, Alabama is going to be on every dude, and Clemson is going to be on every dude. So that'll be interesting. And then the side note of that in recruiting, and, and I'll answer the question. I'll be the judge in a second. Yes. The side note is on that in recruiting is that a lot of kids, USC is cleaning house right now in recruiting. And I think the coronavirus in a very um, unopportunistic way is saying, you know what? I want to stay home. I want to stay home and be around my community, be around my family. And we're seeing it happen. I mean, it's in, it, they're getting multiple commitments when nothing's happening except Zoom calls like this or FaceTimes with recruits. So um, yeah, there, there's, a, there's a lot to say within that. Uh, I think I would side with Michael. If there's a, if there's a way to say, hey, Classes are online, and everybody who walks into the facility every day, like they do in Oregon, they test their um, hydration levels, but we're going to test your temperature. And you invest in those resources, which I don't think every school can do. But if there's a will to do it and some can do it, I think they'll find a way to have the season if they deem A, a vaccine, first and foremost, or some answer if kids get sick, and then B, the ability to almost test you on site and predetermine your health and wellness every single day, if there's still an academic side online. Uh, can I add a C to that? I think if we find out, which it seems to be as you watch the news, that if you've had it, you're immune. And if the test of have you had it becomes readily available to every college athlete, and you basically are, you've had the disease, now you're immune. Well, why couldn't you play then? And that's I wonder how fast that's going to happen because that's really, I think that along with the vaccine is going to allow us to return to somewhat, some sense of normalcy. But until people know if they've had it or not, readily available, I think it's going to be difficult to return to normalcy. So I'm sitting here thinking, where will, maybe it'll be Syracuse University would be the first (laughs) school where if there were no classes on campus, and no administrators on campus, and everything was being done online, but the football team was playing in the Carrier Dome, how fast would there be a mutiny by the professors? Great point. 
That's what I, I, I just, that's why I think there is zero chance of that. that, that it's well suited. The, the problem, I don't want to mean to call it the problem, but the student athlete, it's very difficult if there's no students to have the student athletes on the field. That's why I think the pros will come back much sooner than possibly college, unless we can get A, B, and C done. No, you're right. I mean, there's no question. It's much easier for the pros to come back. No question. I, that's why I, I would think that in the college world, and I know there's been already buzz about this in conversation, that they are having conversations. Hey, let's have some what-ifs. And, and there better be some what-if scenarios, Yo, don't you think? Hey, what if we can't – let's say we can't access our campuses, and on August 1, we get the green line. We've had no spring ball, no off-season conditioning, no like, but August 1, we can come back. And what, what they're supposed to be playing by, what, the 24th or something? You know, I think they've got to be thinking about that, don't they? Yeah, totally. First game would be the 27th right now. Yeah. Um, you know, the week zero games and the weekend of the 29th, some teams play. But I think, I think they're already having those conversations. I had a chance to talk to uh, Pat Chun and um, a bunch of the coaches earlier today. And you're, you're, to your point, like they, they, they're planning for that. I think they have to plan for the fiscal side of that. Um, and how they're going to survive in that regard. And, and I don't think, I know everybody says, well, in the pros, we'll just push the season into 2021. I think the eligibility thing is a big deal because I've been around a lot of guys that are third year. And right now, if there was no Corona, they'd be like, I'm going to the league and kind of throw the towel in academically. Right. So now all of a sudden, if you're going to play, let's just call it six games in the calendar year of 2020 and another six games in 2021. How many teams are going to be impacted by that eligibility? Like, I don't think you want to get into, into that world because then it's recruiting, it's health and wellness. Like, I, I don't know what would happen. I would love to see conference games just being played. Maybe you insert in a couple bye weeks. Um, but you definitely, I think, and the people I've talked to said you need a good six weeks to prepare to play. You know, kids are all doing push-ups, but that, that ain't good enough right now. Basketball hurdles the semesters. So I think there's, there's a major sport that does it. Not that football's never done it, but basketball always does it. Totally uh, fair. I was going to say, here's the other um, example that I've lived through. Different sport. And, of course, pro versus college. 1995. Uh, finally, on about April the 1st, baseball strike ends and the major league players who have not done anything in in a baseball activity since august august to april and they come back and we had about a two-week maybe 15 16 day spring training a second spring training and then they then were on the field playing games and they had a shortened season now these are pros again but remember they hadn't done anything as a unit you know, unless guys were organizing workouts on their own uh, since the previous August. Now, baseball is a different sport. I totally acknowledge we're talking, there is a safety issue about putting football players on the field in a contact sport without being fully prepared. But I guess where I'm going with this is that I think when we come back, whenever that is, everybody is going to have to adjust the standard. This is the way we've always done it. Forget it. Not going not to work. Well, I'll tell you what, here's a, a thought that I would have. Um, let's just say you had three weeks. What if we changed the time of every game? And instead of the current length per quarter, they were 10 minute quarters. What if games got shortened and all of a sudden visibility would clearly grow and all the stuff that we talk about around sports and games being so long, like there is a way to, 
think within the sport and the confines of it, right? Limit your reps, limit your snaps, limit the time of the game. Um, I, I wonder, I haven't asked, but I'm going to ask about some of the things that are being put on the table now, worst case scenario, if you do have to push the season. That's a great point. You know, that's a, I hadn't thought about that. I mean, look, my son played, you know, my son played a, a pretty, they have a Notre Dame, they have a pretty high level of, uh, of what would be a, in essence club football uh, on campus. And they played with no kick. It was the same game that you played, Yogi, in college, except there were uh, three things. There was no kickoffs. There were no 300-pound linemen, obviously. And they had a play limit. They didn't use a clock. They just used plays. It was, I forget, there was an X number of plays per quarter. So that's going to your point. It kept the game under control. It kept the length of game under control. I like. That. I thought you were going to say, when you said change times, I thought you were going to say change the kickoff times, Yogi. And I know Ted wants those 9 o'clock kicks, so... <laughs> 9 yeah. p.m. Absolutely. Let's go. The later the better. Don't mess with those. <laughs> totally. All right. All right. So, uh, Michael, um, and every one of these podcasts here in the offseason, it's been really fun. It's been really well received by the listeners and people watching, whether it's on social media uh, or on YouTube or listening on the pod. Uh, we try to tell a story from the archives is the title of this new series that Ted and I have talked about, where you tell any story from Pack 8, Pack 10, Pack 12 history. It could be a moment that you had. It could be a personal person and, and you kind of created this thing with your humanity moment of the week in the regular season so um would love you to kick this thing off and, and tell us a story as we finish off this episode well i think the i think the story the most interesting story from my time in the pack 12 would have to be the seven days of stanford upsetting usc in the coliseum and then the very next Saturday, Oregon State knocking off Cal with Kevin Riley running around when they couldn't get the field goal off, when basically USC was knocked out of the number one spot in college football, and the next weekend, Cal had an opportunity to move into the number one spot in college football. Think about that, Pac-12 fans, by the way. Two consecutive weeks, two of our teams had an opportunity to be the number one team in the nation. So that alone... But it was just seven days. I mean, one Saturday and then the next Saturday. And I said after, I said, boy, I don't know if I'm ever going to have as exciting a week in, uh, in my time producing television. And I've had some pretty exciting moments, but two in a row like that, not, not ever since. And it's been 13 years. So I still have hope. And we've had some great moments. But those two moments back-to-back, weekend-to-weekend, is pretty remarkable and I'm pretty fortunate to have been involved. I know Ted was involved in the Cal game um, and you were involved in the SC game, if I remember Yogi. So I'm bookended by you too. I should be in the middle, I guess, on this little thing. But so that's, that's my story to kick it off. Cause that's probably the one people remember the most of the games I've been involved in. So Yogi, if we ever get a, uh, maybe we should pitch this idea to the, uh, the powers of our network, the wide world of Pac-12 sports. If we had that anthology show and the opening, the thrill of victory, there would be Harbaugh running off the field at the Colley on Saturday. And then the agony of defeat was one of the greatest shots I've ever seen in my life. The following Saturday, the incredible playboard smash onto the field by Jeff Tedford. When oh, that win opportunity <laughs> got away from Cal, when it was extraordinary. I mean, it was Cal was going to be number one in the country. Just say that to anybody today. They go, what? 2007? Yeah, they were going to be number one. But anyway, that was a great, that was, a, <laughs> that was one of the great 
individual shots that I've ever been a part of. John McDonough, the great John McDonough directing that game. God rest his soul. And uh, Versus Television was what uh, network those two games were on, by the way. The big V upper left, if you remember it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, that, that's good. We got to get Tedford on this show. We're going to start bringing on some guests, and uh, I'll reach out to Jeff and uh, see if Coach wants to come on. And not necessarily relive, relive that moment, but uh, he's had some big, pretty powerful ones in his career. All right, Ted, what you got? All right, so um, I'm going to go back to when I first started um, in the pack, and that was 1985. And I was a young guy that got a chance to broadcast Stanford. And the head coach of Stanford football was Jack Elway. Now, Jack Elway, obviously, was the father of John. How did Jack Elway get that job? Jack Elway, who was an extraordinary offensive innovator in his era, had been the head coach at San Jose State, which is about 14 miles from Stanford. 1981, 82, and 83, three straight years, San Jose State, beat Stanford. All three years, they beat them at Stanford. And the first two years, the Stanford quarterback was John Elway. Jack Elway took his little San Jose State team in three years in a row to beat Stanford, two of those years beating his kid. So Stanford turned around and said, come on over, you're our guy. So I get there, and Jack is in his uh, second year as the Stanford coach, and I have never met a, a football coach anything like Jack. He was a baseball manager that got trapped in football because he was a brilliant football mind. I would go into his office during the week. I had to record shows with him and we would sit there and he would just tell stories. He would tell me stories for half hour, 45 minutes, teaching me about football. And finally, Jan Steele, this wonderful Jan Steele was his assistant, would have to come in. And this would happen at least half the times. Jan would not Coach uh, actually practices in 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. And he's in there talking to this young slappy trying to teach me a little bit about football. So the great part about Jack was that he um, really the closest guy I've ever seen to a part of Jack is Leach. And the difference is that Leach doesn't talk about football and hates if you ask him a football question. Jack just talked about football, but he would just tell stories. And there's no storytellers in football. Jack um, also was a guy that had a, a, a familiar place right across the street at the town and country shopping center that after his work for the night was over, Jack would go and unwind there. Well, we all knew that about Jack. Jack was a guy that enjoyed a cocktail at night. So now Jack, I move on. Jack's next stop after Stanford is the Frankfurt galaxy of the world league of American football, which was started by the NFL in 1991. And it's the league that eventually became NFL Europe. But when it started, its first two years, most of the teams were in the U.S. And there were three, uh, three teams in Europe, London, Barcelona, and Frankfurt. And I was assigned the first year, 1991, I did the games from the European cities back to the United States on USA Network. So the week that we go to do the game in Frankfurt, uh, it's Raleigh Durham, coached by Roman Gabriel Rams fans, against the Frankfurt Galaxy, here's the shirt, coached by Jack Elway. This is, the, this is the eventual team. This is the team that Oliver Luck ran, ended up running. This shirt's from 1991. I still have it. It was the team that Oliver Luck ended up running. And Andrew Luck grew up there rooting for that team. But Jack was the first coach. So why is that funny? Because the game is on a Saturday night. And we went, obviously, it was like a five-day trip. And we were flying home on Monday. So on Sunday, we had Delph. We're going to go see something outside of Frankfurt. So Mary and I get in a car. 
I'm 30, whatever, 32, 33 years old. We drive up this river out of Frankfurt and we go to some town about 30, 40 kilometers outside of Frankfurt. Don't know where, we just pull off. Let's just go wander. It's Sunday. So we wander up this alleyway. And of course, it's Sunday in Germany. So the beer halls are open. The first beer hall, I'm not kidding you, the first beer hall we walk by, hey, Ted, come over here. And I turn around, Jack Elway and one of his assistant coaches are sitting there with a stein of beer like this. And we went over and sat and had a little beer with Jack Elway. And that's who he was. He was an extraordinary guy. He was so proud of his son. My God, he, you, I had never in my life run across a father any prouder and more protective of his son than Jack was of John. But uh, we all had somebody that helped us. And in football, the guy that took, the first guy that really took the time to actually teach me a little bit about football was, was Stanford's Jack Elway. That is awesome. That, is there that, a day of the week the beer hall isn't open in Germany? No, that's the no. one question I had. But okay, I'm oh, sorry. No. How many beers did you have with Coach Galloway? <laughs> no, only one. It's just it's just, I can't speak for Coach. Yeah, one for me because we had to drive back to Frankfurt. But that's I can't make that. You just. But that's Jack. He was just a, he was a magnificent guy. So every time I bumped into John through the years, and I didn't know John. Uh, he had already gone to the NFL by the time I was at Stanford. But I've come across him a bunch of times in, in the NFL years. And he always smiles when I tell him how good his father was. Uh, his father was just, he was just a, he was, he had a, he had talked a little bit like Mr. Magoo. He had a little bit of a, of a, of a monotone ramble to him, but, uh, which was not good. He wanted to get into TV. The last time I talked to him, he asked me to help him get into television. That was not going to be a successful play, but, <laughs> but he actually had, and took Stanford, uh, uh, had one good bowl game. Remember Brad Muster, Yogi? I don't. You, remember, you don't remember Brad Muster? Okay, forget it. All right, Yogi, your turn. Okay, all Mr. right. I'm going to explain who Mr. Magoo was to Yogi next time, though. But go ahead, <laughs> <laughs> okay, this one uh, is, is kind of timely. So as I referenced earlier, I was talking to a coach in the NFL today, and he had me give my analysis on the quarterbacks coming out of this conference. And this conference, as Ted, you know better than anybody, is known for the quarterbacks. And this year, we're talking Jake Luton, Steven Montez, Anthony Gordon, and the two at the top, Jacob Eason and Justin Herbert, regarding getting evaluated by people in the National Football League. Their ceilings, their floors, their traits, etc. And as I started talking about Justin Herbert, who we called his final regular season game, the three of us, the Civil War, he talks to the team for the first time. He breaks down all the stuff that we know and waxed on. You can check it out at pack-12.com. Uh, but it got me thinking about people who come back for their senior year. And it got me thinking to people who have alpha inside of them, but they don't show it every day. That's who I think Justin Herbert is. And it got me thinking about a moment in 2009, my first year broadcasting, and a guy by the name of Jake Locker decided to return for his senior year. He was projected as a top 10 draft pick. At the time, it was still millions of dollars that you can make as a top, trend, top 10 draft pick. Steve Sarkeesian became the head coach there. Coach Sark called me up, who I had known for a long time, and he said, hey, this guy's coming back. I think it might be a great story. So here I am thinking, yeah, this is a great story. Let's go. Call up a producer at ESPN and original films. Her name's Joan Lynch. I said, Joan, I think I got access to this kid's story want to track them all year and ESPN that year did a thing called the year of the quarterback where everything was quarterback from elite 11 to documentaries to series to segments in college game day everything was about the quarterback position 
She's like, let's go. Let's fly there right now. So it's me, John Hawk, who has won multiple Emmy Awards as a documentary filmmaker, multiple 30 for 30s as a filmmaker. He shows up and it's Jake Locker, his mom and his dad. They're from Ferndale, Washington. If you haven't been there, you probably missed it when you drove by because about population a thousand. There ain't anything there. And we sit there at the table, almost like it's in the movie, The Program, when they're pitching uh, the quarterback from the program. Have you ever watched that old college football movie? It's, it's one of my favorites. I make my wife and I watch it before every season. <laughs> and he's sitting at the table and we're basically pitching him, hey, Jake, let us track you your whole senior year. And he goes, you know, um, I don't really feel comfortable with like microphones and cameras on me. That's not my personality, but I know what it'll do for the program. As long as you promise to not make it about me, which of course it was about him. As long as you don't make it about me and it's only the Jake Locker show, I guess I'll do it because that program was, was, you know, downtrodden one coming off, uh, maybe one and 11 or I don't even know if they won a game the previous year. Um, and they take over and they go to a bowl game and we mic'd him throughout the season. He had some epic wins, dramatic losses, but we mic'd him up in his final game was the first time that I believe a college player was mic'd up in a game. And I'll never forget it because here I am on the sideline here, got Sark calling plays in one ear, Jake mic'd up in the other. I know the play. So I'm predicting everything from the sideline, watching it happen in real time. And here's this guy who you hear and you feel him in the huddle because they huddled back then. You hear him compete and grunt and fight and claw. And I think they, they beat Nebraska that night. I think that's who they played in the, it was a holiday bowl. Um, and to, I'll never forget it because I think of Justin Herbert in the same vein of a guy who's quiet, who came back to work on those interpersonal skills about him and himself. And he knew himself and his skin and he's got alpha to him, but it's not in the way that you would see with Jalen Hurts or Tua or Joe Burrow. He's got it in his own way. And when I was talking to that coach today about Herbert, it made me think about Jake Locker and, and he, Jake never made it about him, which of course always made it about him. And I think that's what a lot of the great ones do. Well, that's a great story. Man, he was a great college player, wasn't he? Yeah. Did, you must have seen a Yogi. I don't know if you've seen it, Ted. I, within the last year, there was a tremendous article in The Athletic on Locker that, if you haven't seen it, definitely worth uh, finding in the archives. Uh, yeah. It kind of brings his story up to date a little bit. Yeah, and Pretty if cool. you need a doc. So what, what ended up happening, just as a uh, side note here, footnote, we don't follow him all season long because he is uncomfortable with cameras. So we end up picking a couple games and we do a film called three for the show. It's the first film I was ever a part of. And it's Jake Locker, Tyrod Taylor and Cam Newton. And it's their senior years and their path to the draft. And the Tyrod Taylor one, Ted, it was the year they play in the orange bowl against Andrew Luck. And we mic up Harbaugh in the game and there's great sound of all of that. And of course, as a reference, we mic'd up Jake throughout the season. Um, and then Cam ended up being the number one pick. So it's a cool film. If you need something now in the downtime, Three for the show. Check it out on ESPN. It's in the archives somewhere yeah. on the internet, I'm sure. Little addendum, because I'm just checking my facts to be sure, because Locker, um, it's another Pac-12 story here. Locker's first year at Washington, he redshirted. And Washington started 4-1, and one, and their starting quarterback suffered a season-ending injury. And Tyrone Willingham was coaching, and Tyrone refused to pull Jake Locker's redshirt. And think about that. That's 15, 14 years ago now. Today, nobody, they put him out there right now. Jake Locker was okay, and Tyrone refused. He didn't want to sacrifice the future. 
for that year. And the Huskies ended up, they went from four and one to five and seven because the, the quarterback that ended up playing wasn't at the same level. Um, and that's why Locker had that extra year to come back. But I always remembered, I admired Tyron William because he suffered his coaching resume suffered. His future suffered because he refused to pull that red shirt off Jake Locker. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. I love it. So many stories. And that's why you come to this podcast. So subscribe uh, and for real rate it and review it. It helps the podcast it helps populate it for Pac-12 fans. You're starving for content. That's why we're here. Ted, Michael, myself, we're going to start adding some guests. Hit us up on social, what you'd like. And of course, check out the YouTube channels. Uh, all those Ted's and mine are in the show notes. So if you want to watch it, Mm-hmm. See Molinari. It's not Jason Bateman. It's Michael Molinari. <laughs> Ozark. Yeah, Ozark's Ozark. a good. Yeah, that's my recommendation for you. <laughs> and next time, Ted, we need to talk about Tiger King because we binged it over the weekend, and that doc series on Netflix is is worthy of a few minutes on our next podcast. So my uh, my friend John Wertheim of uh, tennis and sixty minutes fame. Uh, I'm gonna steal a quote from him. He said, "It's bat crazy." <laughs> That's what he said, right? (laughs) Bro, it's every episode. It's crazy. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm going to have to sample them for next week. Thanks, guys. Everybody stay safe. You too. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.